This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. All righty, guys. Again, thank you all for coming to this uh, Farm So Heart residency panel. Uh, this is going to be something a little different than what we traditionally do. And I really wanted to get everyone involved in this. So I'm like, super excited to have everyone on. And it's just a phenomenal thing. So this episode is going to be building the perfect program. And I think everyone who's been involved in making a residency program know how challenging it is and how cliche it may be to actually make and be involved in a residency program. But I really want to talk about all the things that we're doing to purposely try to make a program that's, that's perfect for everyone. This is going to be our PGY2 RPD panel and starting a program in residency recruitment. So as I, as I go through it, I want each of you guys to, and we can do it in alphabetical order to make it easier, but can each of the, the guests for today please introduce yourself, uh, a little bit about your program, the location, and really just talk about your programs a little bit before we get into some of the questions. So Bethany, I'll go ahead and start with you. Great. Thank you, Jimmy. And thanks everybody for joining. Uh, my name is Bethany Kraus. I am the uh, residency program director for an up and coming pre-candidate PGY2 emergency medicine. Our program is at Cleveland Clinic Akron General. So that's located in Akron, Ohio, and is part of that Cleveland Clinic system. Um, a little bit about our hospital, you know, we are a 530 bed hospital. Um, we have an extensive history with residency training. So we have a PGY-1 residency program, PGY-2 critical care and HSPAL. Um, we're adding in our emergency medicine program again to start next year. Um, so our hospital is, for our department anyway, our emergency department, it is a very busy center, brand new department built in 2018. So some state of the art equipment that we have to work with. Um, we see about cumulatively about 100,000 visits a year across our primary 60 bed ED. And then we also have four freestanding EDs that our resident and our pharmacist will be involved in providing clinical consults for. Um, we are level one trauma center and uh, the only level one trauma center for the Cleveland Clinic Enterprise. We are also a thrombectomy capable stroke center in the process of going for comprehensive stroke center certification. So that's underway. Um, and we're also a regional PCI center. We have uh, extensive pharmacist integration that's been there for about the past 15 years. So, you know, very strong history with clinical pharmacy services and uh, also really extensive teaching and research opportunities. Perfect. That's just great. And we're going to move on to Dr. Um, Megan Megelsman. So please just uh, introduce yourself and talk a little bit more about your program. And sorry if I messed up the name. It's okay. It's you made it sound fancier than it is. It's just muscleman, like the applesauce. I, I wish I was fancier. So, but yes, um, my name is Megan Musselman. I am the PGY2 residency program director at North Kansas City Hospital. We're actually in candidate status, which means we have gone through the process of having pre-candidate status and we are um, we have our first resident. A little bit about the hospital, as far as residents, we have four PGY-1 residents, and this is our first PGY-2 in emergency medicine. It's also the first PGY-2 in emergency medicine in the state of Missouri as well, just to let you know that. Um, North Kansas City Hospital is a designated um, cardiac comprehensive center, as well as a level two stroke and trauma center. It has 42 treatment beds, and this includes three time critical diagnosis rooms. We also have dedicated areas for urgent care and acute care observation visits, and we also have um, an area for psych patients as well. We treat approximately 80 to 90,000 adult and pediatric patients annually, and this number has grown in the last year. And we serve the KC metropolitan area, but where we're located, we also get a lot of transfers from the rural area. So we do see a wide variety secondary that, like you can see farm machinery accidents, as well as, you know, your um, urban type of traumas as well. Um, we're very integral at the bedside and we administer medications in the emergency department and those emergent situations. We also are heavily involved in antimicrobial stewardship practices in the emergency department. Uh, we are located in with the physicians 
Um, so they have direct access to us, which is a blessing and a curse. <laughs> um, and so they can ask questions and we work alongside them when they're working at patients. Um, and then we also work very closely with our ED nursing leadership team and provide educational opportunities to the ED nursing staff. Perfect. Let me go ahead and transfer over to Rachel. Please introduce yourself and talk about your phenomenal program. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Rafik, and I am the RPD for the new EM program in Cooper Hospital, which is located in southern New Jersey. We are in pre-candidate status, which means that we are seeking accreditation. Um, So this is the first step in the process. Um, A little bit about Cooper. It's a 600-bed hospital, and it is the only level one trauma center in the area. Um, So we're level one adult, level two pediatric. Um, We're also a comprehensive stroke center and an ECMO center. Um, And we, our program sounds, or our hospital sounds pretty similar to Megan's in that we, um, where we're located, you might see, you know, things like farming accidents, but you also get a lot of the city um, issues as well. Um, our patient population is pretty diverse. We have a large Hispanic population. We also have a large um, underserved community. And um, we we have a very um, much, or our, we should, I should say that our addiction medicine team is growing and our addiction services are growing. So we do a lot with addiction in the emergency department and bridging to care. Um, the pharmacists are involved in all of these things. Uh, we work hand in hand with the docs. They rely on us to kind of help with policy and procedure, help with creating order sets, help with just even, you know, with research and, and you know, making things happen. Perfect. So I'm going to go ahead and put everyone on here now and add the spotlight to all of you guys. So before we get into the questions you guys have in the audience, I had a few questions that I really wanted to ask you guys because this is something that is very challenging. And I think many people don't understand the undertaking that it is to start a program. And we're trying our best to satisfy the need for more residency program spots. And I believe that I spoke with Brian Hayes and Nicola Cuesto previously And in 2004, 2005, they referenced that it was three programs, three emergency medicine programs. And that's very different from where we are today, including your program and many others that are starting right now in pre-candidate state phase. We're we're seeing close to 100 programs now. So this is going to be something that is phenomenal, not just for candidates, but it's really going to be great for our patients because we have you know, highly trained emergency medicine pharmacists that are out there. And we now have a, a say-so, I would say, when getting board certified. So we have all the tools and you guys have been practicing in doing this for a while now. And I'm thankful that you guys have started this. But I want to ask a few questions that I, I sent over. And the big one, and you guys can just, you know, talk briefly about each, each part of this question, but what is the process of starting a PGY2 emergency medicine program? Because many people or want to start, but they're scared, they're lost, they don't know what to do. So can you give a background? And we can start off with um, with Bethany and just talk about what you did initially, and then we can go on in, in the same phase we've been doing before. Sure, happy to talk about it. Um, so I'm not going to lie, it's been a, a pretty a daunting process. And so for any you know future RPDs on the call, you know there's a lot of work involved, but I have to say it's been a very uh, rewarding process as well. And so as Jimmy was saying, we really have a need for residency trained emergency medicine pharmacists. So this is a really exciting opportunity to expand access to programs for interested candidates. Um, the process for me, um, I was really lucky because I've been in my position for two years. And when I applied for this position, there was already a kind of a, a goal in place that they, the institution wanted to start a PGY2 in emergency medicine within the next five years. So I was very uh, blessed to be at, a, at an institution that was supportive of this process. Um, but the general gist is, um, you know, I sat down with the group of the ED pharmacists that we have at our site. And I think this is a really key first step is just talking about what your team is able to do, what you're able to uh, accomplish and, and support as far as a PGY2 residency uh, program is concerned. Um, and then also talk about doing a needs assessment. So what kind of goals do you have uh, for your program? What goals do you have for your ED team? And how do you think that you can leverage a PGY2 program to accomplish that? Um, I think the next big step um, is obtaining that institutional support, but especially financial. 
And that's a really daunting step for a lot of people. I've had a lot of um, different RPDs or future RPDs reach out to me and say, how did you go and get this support? And, and I understand it's, it's definitely challenging, especially in COVID era. There's a lot of scrutiny for new residency programs. So what, I, what we did is we just sat down and built a business plan based on our existing clinical services. There's a lot of exciting literature coming out of the EM FarmNet that's supportive of giving us dollar values for cost avoidance on what, what, are, what are the dollars tied to these standard pharmacist interventions. And because we were good at documenting all of the interventions we've been doing as an ED team, we were able to justify an additional FTE, so a full pharmacist. And instead, we went to the institution administration and said, you know, here we have a favorable return on investment for another FTE, but we'd rather submit for this PGY2, which has lower cost but has better benefit to the future of the profession. And so that was sort of like the big step for us. Um, after that, once you get that institutional support, you submit for pre-candidate status, which is just a simple form that you fill out. And then the hard work begins, which is program design, really getting your ideas down on paper and recruitment, which is where we are. So that's the process that we've been through up to this point. Absolutely. Uh, I'm actually going to go over to Rachel and then let me know kind of your background and what was the process for you if there was anything that was different than what Bethany did. Um, so for us, um, I actually, I think that, you know, Bethany really nailed it. It's, uh, we had very similar process. I think that for, for Cooper, um, our biggest struggle was actually just proving the need of a residency in general. So Cooper Hospital doesn't have um, residents of their own. We do have residents from the local pharmacy school and we take them on for rotations. Um, but, you know, from a C-suite standpoint of our hospital leadership, they don't necessarily know or um, understand what a pharmacy resident is. Um, so I spent a great deal of time you know, up in the fancy office, giving a lot of presentations, trying to prove the value of a clinical pharmacist and the training behind a good clinical pharmacist. Um, and then, and that was, so every hospital will be different, but for us, they, they have like a three-step process. So you had to sort of pass each step. Um, and then once you passed all those steps, then we moved into applying for pre-candidate status. That's great. And then, Megan, can you kind of bring us home with anything that we missed? And again, every, all of you guys seem to have very different institutions and different backgrounds. So I would love to hear if anything differed from, from you when it came to starting your program. Oh, it, it's a lot of it's similar. I would just say, just to add on to it, um, one of the things that was integral for me whenever I was getting it established was while I knew I needed to get administration buy-in, really getting starting with the physicians and nurses was my first building block um, to kind of let them know, you know, talk about having PGY1 residents in there, seeing what they can do, and then showing, you know, further the support. Um, one of the other things, like depending, everybody's emergency department's different, but one of the things that we strategically did is it was a way to expand services in the emergency department. Um, that was one of the things that whenever I did the residency program and design contact through ASHP. They really honed in that PGY2 should also be service expanders. So you should be able to expand your clinical pharmacy services with the PGY2. And that's something that I really honed in on. So being able to show additional services that we could provide, additional coverage that we could provide by having a PGY2 and that showing the cost savings by having that salary versus a pharmacist salary really kind of helped hone that in and really spoke for itself. Plus, whenever you have physicians and um, nursing leaders telling administration they want it just as bad as the pharmacists do, it really does help. Absolutely. And that's one of the key things when I think about, I've been fortunate to be at programs that I did my training at Grady and they've had pharmacists there for quite a while. Uh, my RPD has been there for 20 years. So it's one of those things where it's great if you've been there for a while, but I, I, I think people underestimate the, the, the time and the effort it takes to start this. So you guys are kind of trailblazers in your own stance when it comes to what it takes to make this happen. And, and Megan, I'm going to come back to you for our next question. And this is something that 
it may make sense to people on the outside, but what was what motivated you to start a PGY2 program? Because many people can say, well, you've done what you need to do within the field. You guys have done a great job. Why would you, why do you want to bring in additional, uh, not just PGY1, but PGY2 residents and start your own program? So whenever, you know, when I go back and look back to my career to date, I, the one thing that stands out pivotal to where I am today is my training experience. And um, I'm not going to say how many years ago, but I am a graduate of a PGY2 in emergency medicine um, myself. And um, I just, I still, to this day, even though it was a while ago, I still go back to that year and I still have things that I learned. Maybe I didn't know I learned at that time, but you know, I still come back to them and how that was such a fundamental part of who I am and how I practice today. And I think for me, me, how much I believe in this profession, how much like I've seen it evolve in the years that I've been in it. Um, and, you know, been fortunate to be part of some of that involvement, um, you know, being bo- getting us be board certified, so on and so forth, that I'm just excited to be jur- the journey for the next generation. Um, to me, that's what's most important. It's about how I can help other people create their legacy and be part of that. Cause I am so thankful for those opportunities and those people who took a chance on me and were able to help uh, pave me into who I am today. And just to be able to do that for this next generation of emergency medicine pharmacists is exciting. And for me, that is the biggest and sole motivator for all these long grueling hours that we put in to get this ready. <laughs> Perfect. Rachel, I'm going to come back to you. What what motivated you to start a program? Um, For me, it was twofold. Uh, If I could speak candidly, I actually didn't do an EM residency. I did my second year. My PGY2 was in medication safety, but it was in a hospital similar to the one that I'm in now. It was, you know, a very large academic medical center and EM was longitudinal in both years. Um, And I, I just, I came back to EM because I really loved it. And Um, I, I feel like, you know, each day is a challenge and I'm always learning constantly and constantly humbled by the things that I see and do on a daily basis. Um, but it would have been great to have done an EM residency because I think that what I have learned over, you know, a number of years, um, and even in starting our EM program here at Cooper, Um, maybe would have been expedited had I completed a residency, you know, because then you have very focused training. And I feel that we have a good clinical team that's going to help our future resident learn the things they need to in that one year, rather than doing it over several years. Um, And then the other thing too, which you mentioned previously, is that we don't have a whole lot of EM programs out there. Um, Last year, when I looked at ASHP, there are 88 positions available. Um, And what was interesting, though, is that while 100% of all those positions were fulfilled, there were 57% of candidates that went unmatched. Mm -hmm. And and that is so disheartening that more than half were not able to to go into EM just because we didn't have space for them. Um, So I feel like we, we need this, you know, for our profession and to be able to expand, you know, pharmacists in the EM world. Um, you know, it's, it's really important. Perfect. Matthew, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll add on to what they said, basically the same for me. Um, you know, when I did my PGY2, I, I did mine in critical care and I, I agree with Rachel, you know, at the time, you know, PGY2s and EM were pretty hard to come by. There weren't very many of them. And, and a lot of people, I think, go down the critical care route that maybe actually have that passion for emergency medicine. So I'd, I'd really like to see us grow and expand opportunities for candidates who truly want to be in emergency medicine. Um, for, for me, when I started my new position, I was just, I fell in love with just the amazing opportunities that we have at this hospital. And I knew that we would be able to provide really great training to a resident. So that was really a big driver for me. Um, But I think um, what Megan was saying is that there's a big push to use a PGY2 to expand a service, Mm -hmm. to expand clinical pharmacy um, practice agreements and things like that. And so that was a really big driver for me because I'm very passionate about expanding our service. And I knew that a PGY2 program would be a great way to accomplish that. 
Absolutely. That's just one of the things I think everyone needs to hear. Like, what are the motivations? Like, how do you go about getting these things done? And I'm going to start like going off of a few questions, asking you guys individual questions and kind of progressing with some of these so I can keep us on, on track with time. But one of the things is like where to start, like who to contact. So Megan, can you let us know, like, who did you contact uh, when starting a program? And who are some people that, uh, if, if it's a personal if it's a personal connection, who are people from ASHP or anything to help us find where to start? So for me, um, since there locally there's not any other PGY2s in emergency medicine, but there's other people who've done this. You know, I was never, and I just reached out. How do you do this? So there's a couple critical care PGY2s in the area, and I just reached out to those RPDs. I could say one thing that is great about all of us in this profession is we're always willing to help one another. So don't ever be um, afraid to reach out to those people that have already taken this path and have moved forward, uh, moved forward because they've reached out too. So I think just being open and slightly being vulnerable to ask those questions and just to get their insight, like, how did you tackle this? How do you understand this? I've never had anybody not reach out. I mean, I've had people completely give me their whole residency handbook and like how they put things together. Um, it's just great how good of a community and how people who are training the residents really want more to offer more, just like um, Rachel and Bethany were saying, make sure that we can continue to move this profession forward. So for me, it was to reach out to your mentors. We all have them, people who've done this before and um, don't be afraid to ask any questions because, I mean, I've reached out for multiple people just to get a different view because the nice thing about emergency medicine is that every department's different. While we all had similarities, even as we all described our departments, we all have uniqueness and differences. So it's always good just to see what's out there so you can build your program. Um, but for me, really, to get it started, I just started asking those people who've done it before and just ask them questions. Perfect. And that's just one of the things I think we, I don't know if we do enough of, and I tell people I'm not the smartest person, but I say the one skill that I have is that I'm willing to reach out to people that's in Alaska, Australia, all over to get a question answered. And I'm fortunate to have that. So I think that's the big message for all of us is being able to reach out to people. It doesn't have to be emergency medicine. It could be critical care, it can be medication safety, it can be anything to get an understanding of how the foundation but the next question, and Bethany, I'll come back to you. Is there any assistance like from an organization standpoint to getting the program started? Sure. Um, so definitely there's a lot of assistance from ASHP for this. Highly recommend that if you're considering um, a PGY2, start now and get on their website and start downloading some of their resources. There's a lot of information on their website. So it's, it takes a lot of time to work through that to begin with. Um, but recommend that you start there and, and make yourself a timeline of, of what you need to accomplish and, and get access to all of that. Um, some of the other resources that I use, so AHRQ, um, it's a bit dated, but they did some work with uh, Rochester justifying the presence of an EM pharmacist probably, I mean, easily a decade ago, but they have some really good information in there that's a good place to start, especially if you're a hospital that doesn't have 24-7 EM pharmacy coverage. So starting at that point, um, and then as far as, you know, financial support, I, one thing I, you know, I recommend would be that ASHP has a residency expansion grant. So again, if you're struggling to get that financial support from your institution, you can apply for this grant. It is a hefty application process, but if you put the time in, um, they do award $25,000 grants to new PGY2 programs. So that's an opportunity as well. Perfect. I think just, just people knowing that helps out so much. So I think what we what we need to do is just have more of this available. And I'm trying to make a very short version of like where to go, who to talk to. And I think that's going to be the key thing, knowing that HHP have that. And for all of those who listen to the Forms of Heart podcast on next week, we actually have Terry Fairbanks and Nicola Questo talking about the work that they did in that initial, I think people underestimate the importance of that project. So you guys would definitely hear about that in the second week of February, I'm sorry, of December. But um, Rachel, I'm going to come to you next about paperwork. That's what scares me. Like I'm, I'm one of those people. If you, if you provide a stack of paperwork to me, I'm like, okay, it's just not going to get done. And thank God, I found I work with people who are phenomenal at that. God bless Kelsey Billups and and Shara Calhoun, my, my partners. 
they do a phenomenal job of that. But what's needed in regard to paperwork and, or is there any other requirements that surprised you that you needed to work on? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily that I was surprised, but there definitely is a lot of paperwork. Um, I can totally understand why there are programs out there that are just not accredited <laughs> because it's, it's daunting. Um, we have... What's nice is that ACHP outlines exactly what is required for accreditation and all of the paperwork that is required. So all of the policies and procedures, you know, they say that, you know, you need a policy for duty hours or for moonlighting. Everything is very clearly outlined on their website. Um, but thankfully, you don't need that to get into pre-candidate status. So um, all of that is going to be required by the time they come for your site visit, which is, you know, 15 months after achieving pre-candidate status. So you have 15 months to, to you know, every day work on a policy <laughs> and get it done. Um, so, so this is where we're at now, really, is just plugging away at that. Perfect. And that's just one of the things is knowing that, oh, I don't have to have everything done now. And I think many people who think about this process, they think that, oh, everything needs to be completed immediately. And that's what I, what I have. But I think it's pretty cool to know that there's a certain amount that needs to be done up front. There's a certain amount of preparation, but the next step can be over a period of time. So I think that's a really key point for those who are looking or is going to listen to this and think, hey, I may have a little bit more time. I may can do this. So that's a cool point. And the other thing too, I just want to add um, in terms of, you know, reaching out to your network or whether it's, you know, trying to get this started or, um, or working on the paperwork is I've actually reached out to the ASHP accreditation office several times, and they have been very helpful in, in pointing me in the right direction. If I, if I wasn't sure where to look for something, or if I didn't quite understand some of the language that was written in their accreditation requirements. Um, so definitely don't feel intimidated to, you know, to reach out to them. It's, it's helpful. Perfect. Yeah. And just like, just to give you a timeline reference, since I'm not that much farther, but slightly farther along in this process. Um, so like my first resident started July and I was in, went to candidate status then. And I just got an email two weeks ago of my accreditation date, but it's not till July. So you do get a fair amount of warning, but it can sometimes be more aggressive than 15 months. I don't want to shock anybody there. <laughs> Maybe 12 months. <laughs> well, this is knowing that we have time because think people think like, oh, I think initially most pharmacists thinking we're 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 type A people for the most part. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have a few of us that's a little type B. I'm probably the most type B there can possibly be an ED. But I think most of us think of uh, we have a few weeks, we have a few months. You know, we think about these deadlines we had in residency. And it's like, I have to turn around really quickly when the real world doesn't always pan out that way. But it's still nice to know. 12 months sounds doable. It's just, it just sounds doable. Um, yeah. And they give you plenty of heads up, which is nice. Like I rather know now when D-Day is. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd rather not be like, Hey, by the way, we're coming. You have two weeks to get everything together. See ya. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So a question I just want a, a brief answer from all of you guys, since the next question, I'm going to probably skip that one since we talked, you guys answered it already. What's been the most challenging part of this process. And Meg, we can start with you because again, you are like a little bit of a head in this process. And I would love to hear what's been the most challenging part from your standpoint. I, th I think for me is the mindset of dedicating the time to it versus being um, the bedside clinician. I think that is the balancing act that for me has been challenging. Um, Cause like they said, there is a lot of paperwork to it. Um, I wouldn't say paperwork's what gets me up in the morning, um, to be completely honest, but I know it's necessary and it is fundamental to make sure that you are developing the program to be robust. And so I know that it's a necessary evil, but you choose paperwork versus, you know, a really good trauma. It's really hard. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to be honest. So to me is the little bit more of the practice um, administration component comes more of a part of your job when you do this. And some of the bedside clinical work kind of falls on the wayside just because you have to dedicate more of your time to those types of things. Um, to me has been the most challenging. Um, that's just a personal, personal thing that I've struggled with is, you know, um, I went into emergency medicine because I love the patient care aspect and I still get that. However, I have to balance that time and it's just not as much as it used to be. 
secondary to the other duties. Perfect. Beth, I'm going to come to you. What's been the biggest thing for you? The biggest challenge, I would say. Gosh, yeah, I think I'm going to say two things um, because so one right now is um, recruitment in a virtual era. So I think that's really challenging for a new program, getting your name out there, making sure that people are aware of the opportunity to apply. And, I, I, you know, it's really great that we're doing events like this because it really helps to advertise our program. But I would say, you know, recruitment has been, a, a, you know, a little bit of an intimidating part to this process. But um, besides that, I would say really just designing that program with limited collaboration with other uh, outside you know, mentors. Um, certainly I've reached out to those people that I collaborate with, but without the ability to go in person to conferences and network with other EMRPDs, it's been a bit of a challenge. And so, um, you know, you, you feel a little bit siloed in what you're working on, but like, you know, we've talked about earlier, reach out to the people that, you know, use your ACCP PRNs, like reach out to those people because we are a really great group of people willing to help each other. Perfect. And Rachel, for you? Um, for me, really, it's, um, I feel like it's, it's doing this for the first time, which, you know, obviously no one's necessarily, people haven't been an RPD before and saying, okay, I'm going to start this all over again. Um, but kind of embarking on this for the first time and also for the first time for our institution. So, you know, learning on the fly, doing as much research as I can and really reaching out to my mentors and, and fellow colleagues and utilizing all my resources you know, to try to get through each step of the process. Perfect. And I think one thing people want, want to know is really my last question before we transition a little bit more to the resident side of things, what you're looking for. How long is this entire process? Because again, we, we hear, okay, we have 12 months to get this or 15 months to get this. So from the time you, again, hypothetically, from the time you start this process, if there's any guidance, how long until you're completely you know, done, you're fully accredited. How long does that process usually takes? And Megan, I can come to you. Um, I would say for me, I started a year before, so I started about six to eight months before we went into recruitment and then recruit, recruited, and then now have, so I'd say it's about two, two and a half years until you probably have your accreditation visit. For me, I would speak, um, would say, I, I think it just depends. Um, definitely, if you already have programs on site, some things you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Don't be afraid to use same policies. Um, don't be afraid to use same structures. Uh, you don't need to like make something crazy. ASHP is going to be okay if you have the same um, duty hours policy. You know what I'm saying? So don't like make it harder on yourself. So for me, some of that legwork was done because the PGY1 residency already had it and it could be the same. It didn't need to be unique. Um, But I definitely would have to say a good solid six to eight months before recruitment season started just so I I could speak to the program. You need to know what the program is so you can speak to it. And then um, having them come on site and then to getting all the paperwork done. And, you know, there's paperwork I've had to redo because once you get them on site and you see that, you know, that was a great idea, but it didn't work, you know, those types of things and being okay with that is fine. And, you know, the great thing about it is when I recruited my first resident, I was very candid that they would be part of developing something. And I, I, it was not a negative. Most residents actually were very, or at least they told me to my face, were very excited that to be part of something and to build something and to let them put their own stamp on it. And so um, it what you know, so having them be part of it and have, you know, a fresh set of eyes has been good too. And they were actually going through it and getting their feedback. So it's continually evolving even past what I originally envisioned in a very short time. Perfect. Uh, Bethany, did, did you have any difference as far as like the timeline that they told you from where you're going to be? Yeah, I think what everything I heard from other RPDs was two to three years Um, And if I can give anybody advice, it's be honest with yourself about the time that it's going to take. So I would say we really started the application process, you know, the getting the institutional buy-in about a year ago. So it's taken a year up to this point. We're now recruiting. So I anticipate, like Megan said, maybe two, two and a half years till we've had our first resident through the program. Perfect. Rich, anything to add to there? No, I'm totally on the same page here. We started our process Back in January, uh, we received institution buy-in in August and then applied for pre-candidate status. And then it once you apply for pre-candidate status for us, it took about a month to hear back. And now we're working on recruitment. Perfect. 
So I feel like we've done a pretty decent job of being able to talk about the process, you know, going through ASHP, contacting your resources. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to do, and for you guys who don't know, I'm going to be hosting the Empower Conference in March 11th and 12th. And we have an entire panel there dedicated to PGY2 programs and just being able to have individuals who are residency surveyors, people who are, you know, been involved in this for a while to share information, because I think this is something that we don't talk enough about. We don't talk enough about FT generations. We don't talk enough about, or we don't share enough of the resources to provide us an easy way. And that's something that I'm trying really, really hard to make sure that if you're going to start something, there's another EM pharmacist that has information out there that you can provide. So that's something that I'm really going to hammer down on and see if I can provide any other resources for people out there. But we've really done a, a decent job of doing that in the time that we have. But I want to transition for some of the residents and for some of the, the students who are on right now. The question I get asked more than anything else, what are you looking for in a resident? And you can preference this by saying if you was involved in PGY1 programs, you can preference this as really as you're recruiting your own and your very first or second PGY2 resident. So, uh, Rachel, since we wasn't much there, I'm going to start with you and just tell us what is your ideal residency candidate? I think that's a loaded question, Um, (laughs) but, you know, maybe to be a bit more general, I think that for us, we'd really like to see somebody who is motivated um, and who is open to, um, you know, all of the facets of EM because yes, you know, EM sounds sexy and, oh, we're going to traumas and codes, but there's the ambulatory component to it, you know, that's maybe a lot of the day each day, you know, and, and, or the days are a mixed bag, I guess. Um, and then there's also for us, we cover pediatrics. So, um, you know, I'd love to see what experiences the person who is applying has had, um, and how those experiences have shaped their desire to go into EM. Um, for us too, I'd say that, um, you know, experiences that they've had in PGY1, but also maybe there are candidates out there who did their PGY1 a while ago and then went into the workforce and then decided, you know what, now I want to go back and do EM. I'd love to hear about that and know, you know, what what made you change your mind and why are you interested now? That's probably the majority is your is your motivation and, and your interest to to learn all the different aspects. Absolutely. Beth, I'm gonna come back to you. What what, what are you what is your ideal residency candidate? Uh, the ideal residency candidate, I think to echo a little bit what Rachel was saying was just that motivation and that drive um, to uh, kind of design their own learning. So, you know, emergency medicine is such a mixed bag. It's very variable within our departments. It's really can be a very unpredictable about what a resident is going to see. So there's a lot of self-directed learning, seeking out unique learning opportunities and taking um, advantage of opportunities as they come up. And so we're really looking for a candidate that is adaptable, flexible, and can really take charge of this. Um, Like Megan was saying, we're looking for someone who wants to build this residency program with us. Um, It's a a new baby program. And so there are going to be bumps in the road. And so we're looking for someone who can be flexible with that and help us make this a solid program. Um, I think the other aspect is we do see a lot of um, students come through who just love the critical traumas, you know, like Rachel's saying, and that's a, that's a big part of what we do. But as she said, EM is a mixed bag. And so, you know, you have to have that desire to take care of all of the patients uh, that EM encompasses. And so we're looking for someone who has an understanding of what the EM pharmacist does, you know, all around. Absolutely. And Meg, I'm going to come to you again. Let us know what what is your ideal residency candidate? I feel like we're on a dating show. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I I mean, similar to what they say, but I think what I would add on that now as I'm going through it um, and and learning, I think some of the things that I wouldn't have said a year ago that now I've learned are very important is emotional intelligence and communication skills. It's, you know, you can teach clinical. I don't need a clinical phenom. Um, I can do that every day, but really it, there is tough days in the emergency department. I'm not going to lie. There's tough days for me. There's times where you are the punching bag. I, I don't know what to say, or even the emotional intensity that goes on that nursing's having a bad day and you absorb it. And so I think for me is a candidate with 
emotional intelligence and that can communicate even in the worst of conversations can handle themselves to me would be what that is what I'm looking for in a candidate. Absolutely. I think some of the things now, and I'm, I'm fortunate, I've been pretty young in my career, but I've been fortunate to be part of, I work at two places and both of them had PGY2 programs. So I get to see different things. And I think integrity is something that is very cliche, but when there's something happening and a mistake is made and someone needs to figure out what happened, you know, and if the pharmacist was involved in that, that's a major thing. And now I look at things like that. I'm like, Hey, can you stand up and say, Hey, I made a mistake. Or can you say, I don't know. It (laughs) is huge. It's huge. Because I feel like there's so much of, we, we prepare students initially to, you have to be the smartest person. And I always say that, we teach black and white in this gray world. And if there's a, the, the grayest of the worlds, that's emergency medicine. And yep. I think you have to be very comfortable saying, I don't know, and not make a mistake. So I trust a resident who, if they don't know something, they tell the team and they don't proceed without that. Cause I can teach you that I can yep. throw literature, but I think it's being someone who has emotional intelligence, one, and being, having integrity to know when to speak up or when not to speak up it's so important and you can't teach it. And it's just, it's something that now I've looked back and I say, wow, you know, this is something that we screen for. This is why the interviews are important. This is that why those behavioral questions are so important. Yep. All of that. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I'm looking at it now. Totally and going through the process. It's amazing. It's so important to be a little humble in your profession every day. Right. So important. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's the big thing. So one thing that I get asked very consistently, and I'm I'm fortunate to be faculty as well. And where does GPA matter for you guys in in PGY2? Um, I actually have a, I'll I'll save my answer, but where does it, it, it lie for you guys? Because many students and many residents who either did particularly well or didn't do so well, um, want to know, like, when we're looking at this, does it matter if I have a 4.0 or does it matter if I, if I made it by them phenomenal, you know, in other aspects and Rachel, I can start with you. Sure. So, um, we don't weigh GPA too heavily, um, for us. I mean, it's, it's a factor still just to know where the student, you know, where you were in your, in your student life. But, um, there are other things that are more important that we weigh into a greater scale. Absolutely. How about you, Bethany? Yeah, I have to say the same. Um, we're, we're planning to collect GPA, but it's not a very significant predictor of, of in the screening process. You know, anecdotally, we don't feel that GPA correlates well with success in emergency medicine, um, because quite frankly, a lot of schools aren't teaching the material that you see in emergency medicine. And to say that someone did either really well or really poorly in pharmacy school doesn't necessarily predict how well that they'll be able to adapt to our profession. So um, plan to collect it and kind of look at those trends. But um uh, you know, agree with what Rachel said. Megan, what about you? I'm exactly the same. It's not even on my scoring rubric, to be honest with you. Um, GPAs do not mean they have application skills, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, I had a story where I had someone with me on rotation as an appy, and they were the president of like the Society of Hospital Pharmacy, you know, super high GPA, real high, all those things. And in, in a cardiac arrest, we, we actually discovered a cardiac arrest. And instead of jumping in and doing these different things, that person just like just stood there and couldn't move. And it's like paralyzed by fear while I'm doing CPR, asking for help and screaming for help. And I'm like, wow, what were, where was the GPA now? So at at, at some point I I see those students and I say, now every 4.0 student is not going to behave in that manner. But I realize now I strive so much in pharmacy school to have the highest GPA possible and your GPA is out the window when you step into the trauma bay. It just does not matter yeah. as much. Again, it's something we collect that's not weighed heavily at all. So I think it's something that many students and residents need to hear where, who are you as a clinician now when you, when you come for PGY2? And even if you're going for PGY1, there's some things that you can provide that your GPA just cannot measure. So um, I think it's something we, we should just put out there. Um, Megan, I'm going to come back to you for this next question. And I think it's something that after you read so many, it becomes very challenging to separate candidates. But what stands out in a letter of intent for you? I think one, you can tell when they're stock 
So don't do a stock letter <laughs> um, of intent, um, especially because I know there's examples out there on the internet. So if I can provide any advice, don't do a stock letter of intent because they actually are pretty easy to tell. I think when it's personal, um, to me, that's what, when I can really find the reason why as I'm reading it, to me, that's what stands out. Um I don't want the generic, like, this is what I've done. This is why I'm an ideal candidate because I've done X, Y, and Z. I have your CV. I can read everything that you've done. I don't need a summary of your CV. I need a summary of who you are as a person, how you think you're going to fit in the area of emergency medicine, and why, what you have, what career aspirations or where you see you are you think that the program you're applying to will fit those goals. To me, that's what matters because like all that other, I call it like fact dropping in a letter of intent. I can get that from your CV and I know that's easy to do. I don't like to write them either. I'm going to be completely honest. I am probably poorly and I probably did exactly what I see now. I'll be completely transparent because that's how I was taught years ago is like you start with, here I am, I've done this, I've worked here, you know, so on and so forth. But honestly, I can tell you, for me, when I'm looking for a letter of intent is I really want to see you. And that's really what I want to see come through. And I don't want another list with a whole bunch of words around it of what your CV is. Absolutely. Matthew, what about you? Yeah, I would say if, if they're able to pull in their past experiences and give some examples of what led them to emergency medicine, I think that's really important. Kind of shows their passion and shows why specifically emergency medicine is for them. I think that's important. Um, and then also why our program, but, but staying away from, like she said, that fact dropping, cause we get a lot of letters of intent that are like, you know, I like that you're a level one trauma center. Again, there's a lot of level one trauma centers mm-hmm. out there. So what about our program beyond what you can find on the website really stands out to you? Um, did you reach out and did you try to connect with our program on an individual level? So I would say that if you can, I, I actually don't have anything else extra to say. I feel like. Um, you know, Bethany and, and Megan said exactly verbatim the, the two big factors that I was going to share. Yeah, I think for me now, I can, I, I, I'm not going to pretend to be at this for a long time, but like I feel like I've read tons of letters because I work at two different institutions and I've been involved in, in, the, in the process. And I just want something that's personal. I want to hear the why. I think we can see what. We can all see what's in your CV. We know. And it's like everyone talks about, oh, I'm going to go to level one trauma center. But what makes that different than a level two? What makes that different than a level three? What makes that different in your training? Like, why does that matter? And I think sometimes we like to, again, name drop and fact check and a lot of these, you know, clickbait, you know, letter of intent, like Mm -hmm. we call it. And it's it's okay. But I think if I can understand a little bit more about you as a person through your letter of intent Mm -hmm. and I can feel something when I read it. Those are amazing because it gives you a warm feeling when people talk about the why they chose emergency medicine and then how does your program and your personalities within your program fit the goal they want to reach in, 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 in this life and in, in this professional world. So that's my my big things. And um, those are my, my stock questions for all of you guys in the audience now. This is going to be a phenomenal time. We have a few minutes left before we let everyone get off. I want to have you guys ask a few questions. So if you want to, please go ahead and put in the chat any questions that you had, and we can let our our panel answer some of those. Because again, a lot of you have mixed backgrounds, whether you're currently practicing, whether you're students, whether you're pharmacists or your residents, please ask our questions and put them in the chat now, and we'll get to them now. And if we don't have enough time, I'll make sure that we can be able to get you an answer after. And while you guys type in that, again, this is recorded. I'm going to be able to chop this up, put it on YouTube so people can see. And it's also going to release as one of our next episodes on the podcast itself. So everyone's going to be able to hear this, you know, throughout. I'm, I'm thankful now that we're able to reach the world and not just the, the U.S. anymore. But I'm thankful that we've got to the point and you guys has helped us out so much. So uh, please, if you have any questions, a good bit of you guys on here, if you have any questions about you know, how to make yourself stand out, how, what to look for. Um, this is your opportunity to ask these questions before, you know, in a couple of weeks, you're going to be pressing to submit your application. So um, a lot of you guys, please ask any questions that you have, or just, you know, reach out to us on um, social media. Perfect. So the, the question that we have here, guys, is as a resident, I think one of the things I always keep in mind with Lint 
whether it's my CV or letter of intent, it was always a question of, is it long enough or is it too long? How much does LIMP stands out for various application materials? And Rachel, I can come back to you. I'm not sure that I necessarily think about it from a length standpoint, uh, as much as it is just the, the relevant content. You know, I want to know. So as far as CV goes, I, I couldn't necessarily give you a cutoff, but, you know, I don't necessarily need to know about your appy rotations. If there's a lot of information that you can share more relevant during your PGY one year or during your work experience that you think could be helpful or relevant to, to applying to an EM position. Um, and then letter of intent, you know, as, as everyone has already said, as, as much as you need to share to show your motivation or to show your personality, um, I don't need a three page letter of intent, but if it's, you know, a page or two pages, I, I, you know, for me, I feel that's, that's quite manageable. Keep in mind that we're reading so many letters. So, you know, try to give us that information right up front. If you want us to keep reading to your second page or your third page, you know, you're going to have to make that, that'll depend on what, what you're sharing in the beginning in that first paragraph. And we're ED people. So let's be honest, like you, yeah. you have to capture our attention very quickly. So true. Yeah. <laughs> you'll lose me if there's too much. I'll be honest. Bethany, what about you? Anything for you? Uh, yeah, nothing specific as far as how long, but, um, you know, one thing I notice is a lot of repetitive um, things being listed on a CV. So taking the same activity and trying to, to reword it to fit into different sections of your CV. And I think a lot of applicants get um, into the mindset of, you know, quality or quantity over quality when the inverse is true. We really want to see the quality of the work that you've done. So you maybe haven't been in, in you know, a bunch of different um, activities, but if you're able to speak to what those activities have done to push you into this career path. That's what we're looking for, um, not just long lists of your activities. Perfect. Maybe anything to add to that? They did a wonderful job. I have nothing else to add. Perfect. We have a few more questions. I'm going to cut them off after this with respect to you guys' time. Um, the next question was, what weight do you give letters of recommendation when evaluating candidates, especially uh, since they're likely written by PGY1 preceptors? And Megan, you can start off with this one. Yeah. So I actually require, I mean, it, it would be, you think it would be obvious that it would be PGY1 preceptors, but I actually require them to be the PGY1 preceptors in the RPD um, as the letters of rec. Um, I made that a requirement for application materials just because that's who I want to, um, to spe speak to the candidate, how the candidate is. Uh, we, I'd say it's weighed not to, uh, I'm trying to remember my rubric, but it is pretty close to the weight of the letter of intent. So it has a heavy weight. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, prior to being a PG, the PGY1 or PGY2 RPD, I was a coordinator for a PGY1 um, for a number of years. And so I was very impressed by the letters of recommendation for PGY2 candidates. They're actually of higher caliber, I would say. Um, it, definitely people put much more, I feel like they do much more like um, when they talk about the candidates, it's much more like this is what they did and it has more tangible stuff versus just fluff words in my opinions. I was actually very impressed by the letters of recommendation that I received um, for the candidates that I got for my PGY2 program. I definitely would say they are a step above what I remember reading for the PGY1. So I did not feel uncomfortable giving them um, a, giving them that much weighting in my scoring rubric, if that kind of answers the question. Absolutely. Bethany, anything different for you? Um, yeah, I think I would have to just say... Um, you know, we, we were looking for PGY1 preceptors as well as, um, you know, for our letters of intent. And we do weigh them pretty heavily, but what we're looking for is your performance irrespective of the area that you were in. So we're going to take into account if this was a rotation that maybe doesn't align with emergency medicine. And if you struggled to perform in a particular area, that's not going to be held against you, but we're looking for just general qualities. Were you able to work independently? Were you able to communicate? So we're looking for the, the preceptor to be able to, to speak to your general performance. And we can then translate how we think that that will make you successful in our program. Absolutely. Rachel, any last words from you on this topic? No, I mean, we are the same. We, we, um, we do put some weight on the letters um, of recommendation. We weigh them each individually. So we ask for three letters um, and we look to see what, what each one says. And we, we have a rubric for each one. Um, I think that they're helpful because, you know, believe it or not, 
we do get letters that don't recommend or, or do provide, you know, provide true insight into the candidate. So um, it is really helpful information. Yeah. And unfortunately, we, we, we get text messages as well about mm-hmm. certain things. And we um, a lot of us know each other. And again, if I have a candidate who's phenomenal, I'll let you know. Unfortunately, I think that we should be very candid about what we do. So I think all residents and candidates should be aware of that part as well. Pharmacy is a small world. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to We have two more questions. Again, I'm going to shut it down, guys, because we're a little bit over our time. But the next question was, what do you feel are the best methods to assess emotional intelligence during an interview? And it really caveat this by virtual versus on site. And Rich, we can come back to you on this one. Sure. Um, I like to ask for specific examples from from residents. So, um, you know, like I like to ask, like, you know, to describe certain scenarios. So that way I can kind of gather how they responded, you know, um, you know, just to kind of find out, like, are you the type of person that's going to, you know, jump in and start resuscitating a patient? Are you the type of person that thinks, you know, you know, all the answers to everything? (laughs) Or, you know, are you going to describe a time where maybe you felt hesitant, you wanted to double check something, you know, believe it or not, you know, we, you might, it might on the surface seem that I'm asking you a very specific question, but in reality, I'm also looking to assess, you know, other features in your, in your response, if that makes sense. Perfect. Uh, Megan, what about you? So we actually have um, behavioral questions that are asked. So the, um, I, you, you would think that people would have stock answers, but they don't. And you would be shocked sometimes the answers you would get. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do have a lot of those like, um, you know, one, for example, is like, what was a time that you had to take um, ownership of something that wasn't your fault? And how did you handle it? And what did you do? You'd be shocked at some of the answers we've gotten at that. But I mean, just those types of behavioral questions. Um, I, for PG, I, PGY1, we did have them on site. And uh, this last year, we had virtual for PGY2. And honestly, I didn't see a difference with answering those behavioral questions, whether they were in front of us or over Zoom. Um And then the other thing that we do for the PGY2 is that we actually have a patient case and they have a certain amount of time to work up a patient. And it's a difficult one. I'll be honest with you. It has a couple, like it has, the patient's complicated, you know, like there's multiple different um, disease states that they have to tackle and we don't expect them to get them all. Cause honestly, like I said, I don't need a clinical phenom. I, you know, I need somebody who can handle themselves in an uncomfortable situation and handle themselves well. So a lot of what we do is we make it difficult and not clear. So when we ask them questions, we see how they handle it. And I can tell you right now, when it came to ranking candidates, that case was and how they handled themselves was one of the biggest um, reasons for how people got moved in our ranking or how they got ranked, to be quite honest with you. And you really can see how somebody can handle themselves, um, whether they shut down, whether they just try to guess, whether they, I mean, some people kind of, some, we have one person who fell apart. I mean, do you, it it is a good way to do it. Um, it was, and then it's not like we came at them with tons of questions. It was just a case just to see how they handle pressure because in the emergency department, that's everyday life. So we really wanted to see how they handled that situation. And um, I think that is a good way to do it outside of potentially questions that they could prepare answers for. Absolutely. Bethany, anything for you to add on that? Yeah, um, similar. We we definitely ask a lot of behavioral interviewing questions, um, but we intentionally pick you know, some of those great areas, like you were talking about, Jimmy, we pick things that are a little bit ethically challenging because you're going to run into those in clinical practice. And we want to see how you're going to handle that. Um, One of the things that we always are going to do is we're going to ask you follow-up questions. So a lot of candidates practice that stock answer. We're going to keep pushing you and ask for additional information to see if this is just something you've practiced over and over, or if this is a really genuine answer. And again, for the, the candidates on the call, you know, this is not meant to trip you up. This isn't meant to kind of, you know, set you up for failure. We really want to know how you're going to be able to handle yourself because PGY2 year is going to really push you. The emergency department is a very taxing environment, and we want to know that you're going to be able to handle it. Um, and so that's how we go about doing that. Absolutely. Um, I just think these are things that you can just tell either I'm watching a computer screen or I'm seeing in person some of these questions you can't fake. And mm-hmm. I think for me, when I, when I interviewed, 
these are the questions that I really enjoyed because I felt like I had a diversity of experiences growing up and a diversity of experiences within pharmacy. And I was asked, do you want this to be pharmacy related or solely just my life experience? Because it doesn't really matter. It's, just, it's the same concept. So I think being able to not get crushed in that standpoint, but I also highlight the case. Oh my God, the case. I've also had it to where when we was on site, we had them do something simple as drop RSI meds with blunt tip needles. Like let me have a hundred kilo patient drop RSI meds for this patient. Yeah, it's a good one too. And you, you sit there and some people fell apart. Mm-hmm. And is this is something that you've done? And I, I've seen your in your letter of intent that you've done all these things at the bedside and you constantly are doing RSI. If you can't draw meds for a hundred kilo patient with no other contraindication, that helps me tremendously. So um, that was a, another cool thing. So again, if you guys are listening, make sure you're not a working patient case up and make sure you're not to drop your RSI meds. The last question of the night, this has been a phenomenal session for guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, we have Matthew Mills out of uh, Advent Health East Orlando. Shout out to Advent Health where I did my PGY1. I was at Orlando campus, but shout out to you guys. He's a residency coordinator for the pre-candidate PGY2 program at East Orlando. He's, he want to know what are some ways you can ensure or plan to ensure your residents have a great experience and learning opportunities in areas that you may not offer. Uh, for example, whether it's trauma or pediatrics, if your site is not a trauma center or have a dedicated pediatric pharmacist. And uh, Bethany, I can start with you. We can kind of go back to Megan and Rachel and answer this last question. Sure. So um, I think the first thing is just recognizing that not every site is going to have every service. And so don't put yourself down about that. Um, You know, we're a big academic hospital, but we don't see pediatrics. And so, um, you know, if we occasionally see a pediatric patient, it kind of actually freaks everybody out in the department. Mm -hmm. So, you know, two of the pharmacists at our program trained in pediatrics at a, in our PGY2 sites. And so we said, yeah, could we teach them the basics? Yes. But we wanted them to learn from pediatric specialists. And so really leaning on your mentors and other local programs um, to form affiliation agreements is a big deal. So we reached out and formed um, pediatrics affiliation agreements. Toxicology is a big one. So reaching out to your local poison center and seeing what they have available um, for a rotation, I think is a big deal. Um, Emergency medicine, as we talked about, is such a mixed bag that there are just going to be things that they're not going to see in clinical practice because it's rare. And so we're building in a really robust didactic session where they learn, um, you know, isolated as pharmacists, there's a pharmacy didactics, but also EM, multidisciplinary didactics for them to learn some of these uh, disease states and how to manage certain, um, you know, clinical scenarios where they maybe don't get to experience that as a PGY2. Perfect. Rachel, any, any thoughts from you? No, I mean, I think that that's a great point that Bethany mentioned that if there is something that a resident is interested in that we don't offer, um, my first thought would be just to see if we we can offer it through another another site and create some sort of a you know a practice agreement so that we could send our resident on rotation somewhere for a couple of weeks. Um, we're certainly not opposed to doing that. Perfect. Meg, anything to add to that? So just briefly, so we do, we have affiliation agreements with Children's Mercy and also Poison Control Center. Just make sure I, um, before you bring, if you choose to do that, to make sure you reach out early, just as somebody who went through it. Mm-hmm. Um, children's requires, since we went through Children's Mercy, they require a very extensive background check, which I get. So that was a process um, to get our resident keyed up for that. Um So just like those are like little logistic things. And then also uh, our poison control center across crosses state lines, the most local one. I don't know if anybody has has those issues, but Kansas City, Missouri is very close to Kansas City, Kansas. You guys didn't know geography. (laughs) Kansas City, Missouri is better. I may be a little biased. (laughs) However, um, the poison control center is on the Kansas side, um, which means that we have to ask for dual licensure. So like those little logistics, like I'm being upfront. So I would like try to work those logistics, even if you don't finalize them, just know those little things because those hiccups can come speaking from experience. And it doesn't have to always be a site. We've actually partnered with their EMS services and our residents doing EMS Mm -hmm. ride-alongs. And that also offers experiences too. And EMS love it because they just love to pick our brains and ask us questions too. So it's a partnership that goes both ways. And so actually my resident um, has been doing an EMS ride-along every quarter and she loved the first one and she's going on Friday 
Friday on her second one. Um, so that is other ways to get experiences thinking outside the box. And then also don't be afraid to use different um, disciplines as preceptors. Mm -hmm. That was something that kind of was foreign to me in this PGY2. But right now my um, resident is actually following the PAs and MPs in our ED and she is loving it. Like they're going in, they take the time to explain to her. I've gotten multiple feedback, how much they've learned from her because they're having non-intimidating conversations back and forth and learning so much. And we've actually been able to help with some prescribing habits just because of that one-on-one connection. Um, she was, came in all excited because she got to reduce a toe. And then she told me it really wasn't cool as it sound, but she still got to reduce a toe. I mean, just little things like that where you can give them different experiences um, just by using some resources that you might not have considered in your own institution is all I'm saying. It's like, it's, it's not crazy to think outside of the box. So she does spend times with those MPAs, MPs and PAs, and it's been invaluable because it's not just for her learning. They've also learned as well. Yeah. I just want to highlight one of my favorite rotations. I made it when I was at Grady. I actually had a, what I call it a, a medical rotation where I acted in the place of a fourth year medical students. And I saw patients every day. I ordered labs. I did different things. I presented the patients to the attending and they finished the note, but I presented the patient. I called the admitting team. I talked to the resident. It is amazing what you can learn by putting yourself in other people's shoes. And I've precepted physicians that are in the medical residency program. And I've learned more from them in that process in in teaching them different things. And it's amazing. So I think that shadowing and trying different type of you know, rotation experience can be phenomenal and it can actually allow you to not have to leave the site to get a different experience. So I think all those things are are pretty unique. And, and also just to add on um, to Matthew's question, that's why I created uh, this platform. And it's also why I created the PACU, the Pharmacy and Acute Care University, where I get people from other specialties to come and teach on things that they're used to. If we're having things like RSI, I have a physician talk about their experience and I have a pharmacist talk about their experience. So that's why I created that and just um, why I'm trying to get people together and these different platforms to be able to, to do that. So um, I want to thank you for, again, spending time against time outside of work to talk about all the things that we covered today. We cover a lot of ground. I think all of the, the attendees for coming. Again, it's getting pretty late on the East Coast here. So I really appreciate everyone for coming on. Any final words or any way that we can um, contact you or can you guys put your um, program information or your, your contact information in the chat so everyone can see that? Yeah, I'll just say if there's anybody on the call interested in our program, we are doing um, PPS-like interviews next week. So at the same dates and times as PPS, um, a little bit different sign-up process. So I'll put my email in the chat. Please feel free to reach out and sign up for an interview with us. And we will also be at the ASHP showcase. Thanks, everyone. Just I put my email in the chat and... I try to be good with social media, but I put my Twitter on there as well. I know enough to be dangerous, but I'm trying. I'm getting there. Um, But please reach out if you have any questions. And um, if you're a prospective resident, definitely reach out. And if you're in the process of this and just want to brainstorm, because we all learn from this. This is great. Like I I was a panelist, but I learned myself. So (laughs) please reach out. I'll be happy to chat about it. And I appreciate your guys' time. Perfect. And for all of you guys who want to learn more about this, again, we're going to have another panel similar to this at the, the Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy Resuscitation Conference, the first international uh, virtual conference that we're going to have for EM Pharmacy. That's going to be in March 11th and 12th. I will put our um, email, like our, our address for the, the website on here. It's just empowerrx slash conference.com. So guys, definitely make sure you check that out if we can get more information. But I'm going to close it out like I close every single podcast episode. Um, you don't have to be an RPD. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in an ED. But everything you do, make sure you guys farm so hard. Thank you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.